good. All right. <clears throat> By way of announcements, uh, we've been praying for Pam because she's down in uh, Guatemala uh, as an interpreter for a medical missions group, and we posted uh, some pictures, a little narrative up on the uh, DBM website, so you can take a look at, at that. Uh, <clears throat> they have basically they finished today, and they pack up some stuff and do some last minute little things tomorrow. But they're done with seeing all the patients, and uh, and that. So we appreciate the prayers. Next, well, I'll be here all of next week through Sunday morning, Jan June 3rd, okay? So I'll be here sun that Sunday morning. We'll have communion that Sunday because the next Sunday, uh, normal communion Sunday is the, the 10th, and I will be in Israel then, the 10th and the 17th. Now, what happened is because of, um, because of health issues, at the last minute, last I think it was last Thursday afternoon, I got word that both Tommy Ice and Wayne Martin were not going to be able to cover any classes they were going to cover for me because Tommy got a pacemaker and he couldn't travel yet, and then um, Wayne has to have back surgery on June the 7th. So here's the schedule. I came in yesterday and I recorded a class on the next class on First Thessalonians, so that will be the first Tuesday night that I'm gone, and uh, I encourage you to be here. There's a reason you need to be here. Everybody can live stream. You're watching a video, but there are people who will be visitors that come, maybe, and you don't want to have visitors come and show up and have one person here or two people here, have Eddie and Sandy here running the, the video, so you need to be here, okay? Just because I'm not here live doesn't mean you can play hooky. Second, uh, Ray Mondragon, who is a professor for Chafer Seminary, lives in Albuquerque and does an outstanding job teaching uh, various, a lot of different things, but Ray's really good. And Ray is going to be able to come in. He did. He's in Kiev right now, and he gets back about the time we leave for the early part of that week, and then He'll be coming in on Thursday the 7th, and he's going to teach all the sessions where I'm gone, that Thursday night, both Sundays, and both both Thursdays, both and then the other Tuesday. So uh, be here for those things. It's it's important. You're going to love Ray. He's a good teacher, and, uh, um, and be here for the video. So uh, we need to make sure there are, are people here. You never know when visitors are going to come in. We've had several that have come in uh, for different things, and so it's not good to have uh, nobody here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. 
It's important to keep close accounts in terms of sin, confessing sin, making sure we're walking by the Spirit. But whenever we are studying the Word, whether it's on a Sunday morning or whether it's during the week, it is always a time of worship. And so we are to worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we can come together to study your word, to be challenged about what it teaches about fervently loving one another, understanding what that means and its significance for our spiritual life, our spiritual growth, and our testimony. And as we continue our study about love this evening, we pray you'll help us to understand what your word reveals and that this is not something we can manufacture on our own, but is a a product of God the Holy Spirit working in our lives as we grow and mature. Help us to understand these things. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're looking at the characteristics of love, uh, primarily in verses 4 through 7 in 1 Corinthians 13 tonight. We'll have a little backup review, but we're coming at this as we look at 1 Peter 4, 8. This is the it's not really a command here. It comes across that way in the English, which catches the sense of the Greek, but the, uh, it is uh, carried over from the commands that are in the previous, uh, previous verses we'll see in just a minute. There, Peter writes, above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover which that word there, as we'll see a little later on, has the idea of hiding or concealing. It just doesn't make, what it's saying is, love doesn't make an issue out of other people's sins. That's what grace is. It's not going to focus on the the person you love. You're just not going to make an issue out of their out of their failures. So this word that is translated fervent, I pointed out this last uh, week, it it's appears to be a command, but it really means to hold on to something, to maintain something, to preserve something. And what Peter is saying here is above all, emphasizing a priority, above all, continue to maintain. That's the present tense of, uh, that, that we have in the word holding or having. It's a present active participle, so it has this idea of holding on to some, continuing to hold on to something. But this word that is translated fervent is an interesting word. I keep looking for different ways to express it. I've used the word passion, not in an emotional sense, but in the sense of, uh, of intensity, an intense focus on something or an intense uh, zeal on something, and that's that's the idea. I finally, you know, ran across some other terminology that captures it without giving using a word that that has an emotional connotation, because that's not the idea here. Love itself is not emotional; it is a it is a mental attitude, focus on the object, as we're seeing in our study in First Corinthians chapter thirteen. So, what Peter is saying here is above all. Continue to maintain an intense zeal or an intense focus 
on love toward one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. We saw that this is, as it were, the fundamental foundational command that Jesus gave his disciples in John 13, 34, and 35, that we're to love one another. We're to love one another as Christ has loved us. And what's interesting there is that when you get over into Ephesians 5 and it talks about husbands loving your wives, they're to love their wives as Christ loved us. So, men, you're not expected to do anything toward your wife that you shouldn't be doing towards her anyway as just Christian love. That's the focal point there. Christ is always the pattern, which is really tough. Everybody's expected to love one another as Christ has loved us. That is the mark of a disciple. So we studied through what the Bible teaches about love, and then in 1 Corinthians 13, we've been looking at these passages that emphasize the characteristic of love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, we have a have parallel statements where Paul is emphasizing in a, in a sense of exaggeration. Now, the problem that we get into here is that there are people who take this Literally, they don't understand the, the, the tone or the mood of what is being stated here. And so they look at these things as if uh, they're expressing realities, that, if, uh, that, that speaking with tongues of men, or, and the word for tongues means languages, as I pointed out last time, that if you speak with languages, human languages or angelic languages, that what, he, what that indicates is that there really are angelic languages and there really are, uh, and there are human languages. You can't derive that from this kind of a statement. There may be, angels may have a language that, um, that is unique to them. Prove it. How would you prove it? You know, what you have in the charismatic community is, oh, we're speaking these spiritual languages, the language of angels. Prove it. How do you know that? Give me one example in the Bible where an angel communicates in anything other than the human language of the person they're speaking to. There's not one. They always appear, whether they appear to Daniel, speaking Hebrew or Aramaic, or maybe even Chaldean, but probably Hebrew, or whether it's Gabriel appearing to uh, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, or whether it's Gabriel appearing to Mary or to Joseph or any other angelic appearance in the Bible. They're always speaking a human language. You can't assume that there is a distinct angelic language. Now, there may be, but you can't argue from a premise that where the, there is no evidence for it whatsoever. And so all Paul is doing here is, is taking a situation because the, the Corinthians are abusing this gift of language. And as I pointed out last time, they're using the, the modus operandi in uh, pagan mystery religions. And they're taking what, what's in their background and they're bringing that into Christianity because they see something similar. So now they're talking in ecstatic utterances, which was typical in mystery religions. 
You had the mystery religions at Delphi with the Oracle of Delphi. You had mystery religions uh, with Dionysius and others. And not only are they involved in some sort of ecstatic utterance, it's interesting. I tried to prove this years and years ago, and I studied all of the, all of the read through all of these different, different passages related to what was going on in the pagan religions, and they never used the word glossa to describe what the Oracle of Delphi was doing or any of the others. But even though they don't use that term, what was happening on the ground is because a, a, a Corinthian didn't understand what somebody who was speaking the spiritual gift of, of languages was saying, they assumed it was the same thing as what they would experience when they would go to one of the these temples worshiping uh, various gods, whether it's Dionysius or Apollo or uh, or the Oracle of Delphi, and so they brought this pagan idea of spirituality into Christianity. That you would have these kinds of experiences. It meant that you were closer to God. It meant that you were more spiritual. It meant that you. Uh, that the God would enter into you and speak through you, and so they were bringing a counterfeit experience into Christianity and labeling it with a with a biblical term, and that hasn't changed any in recent years. This is the same kind of thing that we see in the modern Pentecostal movement, starting in the uh, in, which started in the in, in 1900, when a Bible student at a Bible college in Topeka, Kansas, who was, thought she was going to be a missionary to China, was praying that she would be able to speak in tongues because their understanding at that point, the understanding was that this, this would be human languages. And that's fully what they experienced. And she claimed that she spoke in Chinese until she tried to speak to someone who was Chinese, didn't understand a word she said. And so eventually what happened, because in the charismatic movement, after decades of trying to prove that these were miraculous, uh, miraculously learned human languages, they finally had to fold their tent on that one and just say it was a special prayer language. It was an angelic language. And see, then you can't prove anything one way or the other. You just have to accept their word for it. And as I've pointed out before, I would have people tell me, well, it must work because my prayers, when I pray in my prayer language, my prayers are answered more. Really? Well, how do you know what you pray for and that it's answered if you don't understand what you're saying? That always seems to stump them just a little bit. Uh, And study after study that's been done by those who were Pentecostal, those who were sympathetic to the Pentecostals. I referred to one classic study in the 70s by William Samarin and others. There were many, many others that took, took utterances, uh, tongues speech, and analyzed it linguistically, and they could not prove that it had any linguistic structure whatsoever. It was gibberish. It wasn't a language. It's never been proven. And the interesting thing is in the last 30 years, you really don't hear much anymore about tongue speaking. In charismatic movements, they have gone beyond that into other uh, heresies, emphasizing uh, prophetic utterances today, 
um, the name it and claim it prosperity movement, but you don't hear that much uh, of a debate over over the tongues issue anymore. But this is the background here. Everything that that Paul is saying in those first three verses, he's taking these statements that are being made by certain cliques within the Corinthian church and saying, look, you're making all these claims about how super spiritual you are. And you have to remember that all through this, this epistle, he's been rebuking them for their arrogance and their divisiveness, so they're not spiritual. Remember back in chapter 2, he's talking to them. He says, I have to speak to you as natural men, as unsaved, because you're not spiritual. You're walking according to the flesh like mere men. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. And so he's just blasting them for not being truly biblically spiritual and walking by the by the Holy Spirit. So all of these statements are hyperbolic to make the point that no matter what you may claim in your about your spiritual growth and your spiritual advance, if it's not characterized by biblical love, then it's it's meaningless. It doesn't matter. It is a joke and a fraud. And so that's what he's emphasizing here. And you have these uh, statements, if you are, if, uh, even if I did speak with the languages of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now, what's interesting here is this clang, sounding brass and clanging cymbals, this was actually typical uh, use of these kinds of instruments in the pagan worship of the mystery religions. And I just put together a little bit on three basic, these are very popular, there were a few other mystery religions, but one of the more popular was the uh, the cult of Eleusis or the Eleusinian mysteries. These, this was one of the oldest and most famous of the Greek mysteries. And they went to a place called Eleusis, which is near Athens, and there they would celebrate the fertility cult of Demeter. Now, whenever you hear fertility cult, you always think sexual activity with the cultic prostitutes at the temple. I mean, that's the heart of their worship. And when they would unite with, a, with the cultic prostitute, that's uniting with the God. And there's all of this emotion. And in the case of the second mystery religion, which is the worship of Dionysius, his Latin name was Bacchus, that they had, they would get drunk with wine because he's the god of wine, and then they would get involved and work themselves up into this state of ecstasy, and there was a lot of sexual promiscuity, and they would go so far as to eat the flesh of raw animals. What does that violate? The Noahic covenant. And so this is also typical not only in Dionysian worship, but it was uh, part of the, the worship of in the Sibylle Addis cult, which is the third one I'm going to talk about. So uh, they were violating all of these foundational covenantal uh, laws that God had established that Jews and Gentiles were both uh, accountable for. So in the Dionysian worship, uh, it was interesting from what I've studied that it appealed uh, to women in, in a lot of ways, but it was all involved with, with a lot of illicit sexual activity. 
And then the third one is the mother goddess worship of Sibylle, or uh, sometimes it's spelled with a K because there wasn't a C as an S sound in Greek. She's the great mother goddess. And it was really bizarre because there was one elite group of her followers called the Galli who would castrate themselves in order to be eunuchs to serve the great mother goddess. And then they would, every year they would have this ceremony where they would slaughter a bull and then they would drench themselves in the blood of the bull, drinking the blood and eating the raw meat and all of that kind of a thing. But in one of the accounts that we have of this, which was written by Clement of Alexandria in the late, I think it was the late 3rd century, mid-3rd century, says that uh, he said, um, he talks about what they were doing, that they would uh, eat from the drum or the tambourine. See, that's what we have here with the uh, clanging cymbal, the tambourine. And he said, I've drunk from the cymbal, I've carried the sacred dish, I've stolen into the inner chamber. So this is, he's quoting someone talking about their worship. So what that points out is this language that Paul is using, it, he's pulling it from the practices of these these uh, pagan mystery religions. And uh, and that that fits the background here. So if you we don't understand what's going on at that time with these mystery religions, then we miss on you know what he's what he's doing here. And so he says if he doesn't have love, then he's just becomes you know like meaningless sound. Pointed out Galatians five twenty two, love is a fruit of the spirit and it denotes volitional acts of regard and respect and concern for the welfare of others. It's negative in that it doesn't involve mental attitude sins, but it's positive in that it emphasizes giving toward others, helping others, caring for others, serving others, and being kind uh, toward others. The second verse I pointed out last time, again, he says, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, nobody understood all mysteries. Even Paul didn't know it all. So this, again, is just exaggeration that even if I knew everything and had all knowledge, um, if I didn't have love, I would be uh, be nothing. This is just a picture of worshipers from, from a... Uh, from a Sibylle Addis worship there. And then um, verse 3, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but don't have love, it profits me nothing. So then in verse 4, he starts going through these characteristics of love. And he starts off with two positive statements that love is long-suffering or patient, and love is kind, those are the positive statements. And then after that, there's followed by all negatives until you get down to the end of verse 6, where it's talking positively that it rejoices in the truth. And in verse 7, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, and love never fails. So the focal point is mostly on defining it, describing it by what it is not. So let's go through, work our way through each of these uh, characteristics. The first word, love, 
suffers long or is long-suffering. That's the old King James uh, translation. It is a fairly literal translation from the Greek word makrothemeo, and makro means long, like mac- where we get our word macro, which is big. That's uh, how it comes over into English. And thumeo has to do with suffering. So literally, it means to suffer a long time, or its usage is to be patient. So it has that emphasis on being patient, being steadfast, remaining tranquil and calm while waiting for something to happen. So if you're loving someone, they may not respond the way you want them to respond, and so you are going to continue to be patient and treat them well uh, without end. It's, it, it's a reflection of the idea of forgiveness when Peter asked the Lord Jesus Christ, how, long, how many times should I forgive somebody? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, seven times, 70 times seven, which is basically saying you never stop. So you have to have patience in order to do that. So that's the idea. It's remaining tranquil and calm, not becoming impatient or irritated. We'll get into that uh, a little later. While you're awaiting, and it even involves enduring provocation without complaint. So it also includes the idea of not seeking revenge when somebody does something uh, bad to you, when somebody is... uh, uh, (coughs) maligns you, gossips about you, uh, does something uh, wrong in some way. Uh, There's no retaliation. There is just steadfast kindness and graciousness toward that person. The the op, it's just the opposite of what was natural in Greek thought. Greek thought at this time was really enhanced and focused on the sin nature. It was very self-centered. Philosophy was very self-centered. The culture was very self-centered. You promoted yourself. That's why when the New Testament came along and emphasized humility, it was a real confrontation with the culture because the words in in Greek for humility, uh, this wasn't a virtue in Greek culture. It wasn't a virtue. You need it. If anybody's going to promote you, it's going to be you. Who else can promote you the best other than you? So, so at the very core of Greek thinking was a promotion of self and self-absorption. So this idea is, was very much uh, present. Uh, in 2 Peter 3.9 uses the word makrothemia to refer to the Lord, the patience of the Lord. And it shows how the Lord is gracious with us and waits a long time. And he doesn't expect us necessarily to respond and obey instantly, but God waits a long time. So that's that's this idea of graciousness. We see at... Um, we see this word makrothemia showing up in some critical passages like 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Now we exhort you, brethren. So he's addressing all of the congregation in 1 Thessalonians. We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient, that is, long-suffering with all. So that's just a manifestation of loving one another. In James, uh, you have uh, 
James 5, 7, and 8. Therefore, be patient, be long-suffering, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Well, wait a minute. What if he doesn't come back for 2,000 years? Well, be patient. You have to wait. Okay? Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until uh, it receives the early and the latter rain. And so in Israel, that deals with the fact that there is a uh, uh, an early time of rain in the growing season, and then there's a latter uh, type of rain. It doesn't have anything to do with what the Pentecostals call the, the early rain is the outpouring of the Spirit in Pentecostal theology in the early church. And now we're experiencing again, and that's the latter rain. In fact, the latter rain doctrine in the Pentecostal movement is even declared to be heresy by a lot of the more uh, biblically-based uh, charismatics. So it's just talking about the rainy seasons in Israel. And in James 5.8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And see, we saw that same language in 1 Peter 5, um, excuse me, 1 Peter 4, 4 6, that, that the coming of the Lord is, is, is near. And it's because it's near to the church age because there's no prophecy that has to be fulfilled. So it's an emphasis on on uh, the fact that it can come um, at, at any moment. It's imminent. So the first characteristic is patience. The second is kindness. Kindness expressed towards those who may not be treating you well being kind to someone who is persecuting you, being kind to someone who is uh, causing great anguish in your life, someone who is uh, treating you miserably. You have to uh, be patient with them, and it is kind. It's the Greek verb kreistuomai, and what's interesting here is that this is the only use of this verb in the New Testament. There's the noun that is used, which means to be uh, treat people morally well, ethically, and be benevolent. Uh, but it's a noun, which indicates a static position. By using the verb here, what Paul is emphasizing is that love is active. Love is something that you do. It's not just a static or a passive thing which goes against what I've said from the beginning, it's not a, just an absence of mental attitude sins. It is a positive aggression of kindness toward people, even those you may not uh, care a lot about, even those who may be mistreating you, even those who are not uh, worthy of kindness. There is a, another form of this word, Christotes, which is used several times in the New Testament, and it is always a description of God, and it's usually connected with God's love and God's faithfulness, that it is a description of his grace and kindness. So what we see here is the correlation between love and grace orientation. We're treating people with goodness and kindness. We're being very helpful uh, to them, even though they do not deserve it. The third characteristics that we see here is expressed through a negative. It does not 
envy, and this is a Greek word, zelao, and it, it's translated in some places in a positive sense of being zealous for something. So if you have a favorite hobby, you're zealous for that. If you, if you like to read a certain author and you're telling people about that author, you're zealous for that. If you are advocating for a political position, you can be zealous for that. Those can be, that's the good side of this word. But the negative side is when it's motivated by sinful uh, emotions and sinful motivation. And in this sense, it has the idea of being jealous, being envious, and desiring something wrong, something, some sort of evil to come to the person that you're jealous of. James 3.16 links it with being self-absorbed. For where envy and self-seeking exist. See, envy is all about me. You've hurt me or I want something about you that I can't have and so I'm going to uh, be vindictive or I'm going to create problems in your life. So envy is connected with self-absorption. That's just the opposite of love. James says where envy and self-existing exists, confusion and every evil thing are there. So it is very much a product of the sin nature. James 4.2, it's translated as being covetous. You desire something illicit. You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You do not have because you do not ask. So it's, it's self-seeking. So this is a very negative concept. So what we see in love is it's positively, it's patient, it's kind, it reaches out, it is aggressive in being positive and expressing goodness towards the object of love. It is, um, but it isn't jealous. It's not driven by a, some sort of self-centered uh, motivation. Uh, the, another way in which it has been translated is that it's the idea of not burning with envy. And that indicates the intensity that is present in this in this verb and uh, one translator suggests that the way to get the idea across is that love never boils over with jealousy so that pictures the, the the intensity that's in this particular word this is often uh, seen today in, and it, throughout history in Christians who are seeking power, seeking status, seek, using their Christianity to put them in a better position in business and in their social life. That is not the product of God the Holy Spirit. And then fourth, we see this phrase, Love does not parade itself. And it's an interesting word. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. Again, it's a verb indicating action, but it's negative. So it's not doing this. It's perperuomai. And it means not to brag or to speak emptily of one's own accomplishments. And so that's very much related to the next word. It's the idea, uh, 
uh, has a dynamic force. It's not a braggart. It's nobody who's putting himself forward, who's uh, putting it, always talking about what he's done, who he knows, what he's accomplished. And this leads to uh, fusiao, which is the idea of being conceited, being puffed up, uh, ideas such as being haughty, uh, being proud, uh, inflating your own importance. Uh, it, it, this word is used to talk about gnosis, or people who are just in, in academic arrogance, and they're all uh, impressed with their uh, academic accomplishments and their knowledge. And this is what Paul's talking about in, in 1 Corinthians 8.1. He's not saying uh, that it's wrong to have knowledge. It's gnosis, not epinosis. Epinosis has the idea of the application of the word. But there's, you always saw this, and I remember when I was in seminary, and I still see this. This is uh, one of the uh, uh, problems that you see in the academic environment. You, as a, as a seminary student, you're learning a whole lot more than you can ever hope to start applying. And usually you're in your 20s or 30s, and you can be pretty immature at that time as well. And so it can lead to a lot of academic arrogance. And uh, it takes time for God the Holy Spirit to slap you down a little bit to uh, bring out the and teach you some humility and apply grace orientation. Uh, but, you know, you don't get away from it in the academic environment. Every now and then I run into individuals like this. Usually they have very high IQs and they have, uh, they have discovered some things that in fact I have one in, I won't mention his name I have one individual in mind he's written some books and he comes across as as look at what I've discovered and I said well I learned that from my pastor when I was growing up when I was about 15 years old you haven't discovered anything new uh, and there's nothing new under the sun and uh, a lot of us have you, you hear things from me you never heard before but I'm not the only one I don't I can't think of anything that I teach that I'm the only one who teaches it there may not be a whole lot of people who do teach it, but it's, you know, I'm not generating this stuff because I'm, I'm so brilliant. It just, it takes time to study and read, and sometimes you have some really wise people who have uh, communicated truth, but it's hard to find them and dig it out. So this is our picture of love in just one verse, and it's pretty challenging. Do we really love people, or are we just like the impact they have in our life. They make us feel better about ourselves. Verse 5, we're told that another negative is that love does not behave rudely. Boy, does that strike at the heart of a lot that's going on in our culture today. There, it emphasizes the fact that love conducts itself in a proper and appropriate manner. It doesn't disgrace itself or disgrace others. It doesn't bring shame on anyone. It's not ill-mannered. It understands the proprieties of situations, that there are social boundaries that you don't cross over and that you comport yourself in a, an appropriate manner with uh, everyone uh, around you. And that's the idea here. It's, uh, it, it means that love is not disruptive. It's not discourteous. It doesn't uh, talk back in sarcastic uh, manners. It's not rude. It doesn't put people down. And it shows good manners. 
and Curtis, always courtesy toward others. So love does not behave rudely. It is not uh, discourteous towards others. Always seeking the best for its object. Then the next phrase is it does not seek its own. And this is basically a verb indicating again that action. It's, it's got the negative there, so it's not self-absorbed. It's not seeking attention. It's not trying to bring a focus of other people onto what it has done and what it has accomplished. It doesn't put itself first. It's not all about me. It's never all about me. Whoever you are, it's not about you either. It is always, as a believer, about the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our focal point. So love doesn't seek its own. Third in this verse, it's not provoked. In other words, it doesn't get irritated with the object of love. It's not easily angered. It doesn't easily get upset. It is, you don't get irritated with the object of love. And I think this is really hard. It is really hard, especially if we have a lot of people I know in this congregation who are taking care of or have taken care of elderly parents. And I hear this not just from people in my congregation. I've, I've gone through it. I know many others have. I don't know what, what it is when we get older, all of a sudden, we don't want to listen to our kids. Maybe we never wanted to listen to our kids. But when folks get older, there's this horrible transition that has to occur where parents have to become, have to let their kids transition to take over a lot of things. And the friction that occurs there and the irritation that occurs there. And, and we, ha- we have to deal with that. That's not love. We have to, that's a great test. You think you get out of it when you get older. No, you got a whole set of tests coming as your parents age and then as you age. And how are you going to handle it when you get to a certain age and your kids start saying, well, I think you need to move into a retirement home or I think you need to scale down here or I think you need to do this or do that. And and all of a sudden you have to face your own temporal limitations. That's going to be a test. We all get there sooner or later. And so it's good to try to learn from these things you know, as you go through it, uh, as a as a older person taking care of your parents, love is not irritated. Doesn't get irritated with the object of love. Interesting place where this word is used is in Acts seventeen sixteen, when Paul has left Thessalonica, he's gone to Berea, and then he goes down to Athens. And as he's walking around Athens, Athens just had so many temples to so many false gods and so many idols. You know, there was an idol on every corner. And it says his spirit was provoked within him. What it means is Paul got irritated at all of the idolatry and paganism that was in his face in Athens. That's the, that's the idea there. So, so you think about how you get irritated at the garbage that's going on in our culture. That's what Paul was doing. And that irritation is not part of love. 
And then the last thing that is stated there is it thinks no evil. And the word there for thinking is logizomai, which has to do with reasoning. You're not manufacturing. You're not becoming suspicious of people and manufacturing scenarios that they're doing something wrong. There's no paranoia going on towards the object of your love. So you're you're not uh, dreaming up negative, evil things that that you think they're doing. So love doesn't uh, comport itself in a rude manner. It recognizes the proprieties. It's not self-absorbed. It doesn't get irritated easily. And it doesn't manufacture evil scenarios about the object of love. Then we come to the sixth verse. Continues to talk about negatives, but then it shifts in the second half. You have a contrast here. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Now, the contrast here is between the word adikia and the word alethia. Now, the word adikia, the A at the beginning is a negative, like our word un. Dikia means righteousness, so adikia means unrighteousness. So it doesn't rejoice when something bad happens to the object of their love. You, you know, you get irritated with somebody, and then something bad happens to them, and you don't go, yes. Okay? That's not love. You're not happy about their uh, discipline or their failures. Instead, you rejoice. It's positive. You rejoice in the truth. Now, the A there at the beginning of aletheia is not a prefix. It, it, the word simply means truth. Sometimes it means uh, faithfulness. It, we rejoice in that which is faithful, that which is faithful toward God, that which is true. And we rejoice in the good. So we are to be positive, not for the sake of being positive. That's paganism. That's Norman Vincent Peale and the power of positive thinking. But that's what love is. It's focusing on that which is uh, productive and good, the positive spiritual growth that's taking place in someone's life. Life. And then we come to uh, the last description, sort of a sum up. And there are four things that are said here. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Pretty much not a Pollyanna scenario. This is not somebody who just has their head in the clouds and naively goes along believing everything, but it's somebody who is in the second word, or excuse me, the um, the first word there is really comparable to what we're reading in First Peter. The idea of bearing all things. What does that mean to bear all things? Part of it is the idea of just you, you put up with some stuff. And any two sinners that live together as husband and wife, or parents and children, or parents and their parents, uh, anytime you're with any other human being, you have a clash of sin natures. And that's why in marriage counseling, I always say one of the things that's important when you're looking at marrying somebody is you have to make sure your sin natures are compatible. Now, that sounds odd for people, but if you're out of fellowship and you and people can get out of fellowship for a long time, they can be really carnal. And if your spouse gets carnal, can you all put up with each other in your carnality? 
See, if your carnality trends towards self-righteousness and theirs is towards lasciviousness, you're headed for a major problem because you can't understand each other's sinfulness. And you have to do that in order to put up with each other when you're angry, when you're impatient, when you get depressed, whatever your trends of your sin nature are, there are times and we all go through them when your sin nature just manifests itself in the middle of your in the middle of your your marriage. You're married 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, these things come out. And so you have to learn to bear and put up with those things. Now, the word that this I have that's in the Greek here is the word stego which means to cover. And that means you're not going to start talking to your friends about your husband or your wife's problems. You're not going you're going to keep it to yourself. You're not going to you're not justifying it. You're not going to do that either. But you're not going to go around telling people about what these problems are. And you're not going to make an issue out of it with your spouse every time that this develops. It's interesting how some people just have the ability to say, well, you know, you did you did this in 1983 and you did this in 1986 and you did this and I never will forget March of 1991 and they've just cataloged all these things. That is not bearing all things. That's not covering all things. It's that the word that's used in our passage in 1 Peter 4, 8 is calupto, which means to cover something. And that's the idea is you're not going to bring it out Every time your spouse does it against it, you never ever do. You always do this. You're not going to give that litany, bring out the grocery list every time they do that. That's not bearing all things. Bearing all things is you're just going to put up with it and shut up about it. Okay? That doesn't mean you're justifying necessarily uh, sinful behavior. If you're married to somebody and they have problems with drugs or alcohol or they're just uh, spending everything that comes in and causing financial uh, problems or they're abusive, you have to deal with that. But we're talking about how you deal with it. Not co- you're not going to cover it up, but on the other hand, you're not going to go tell everybody about it either. Uh, you have to approach it in a mature, responsible manner and try to deal with it, but not hold it over somebody's head and constantly bring it up and that sort of thing. It's, it's possible. Believes all things. You're going to be trusting in the person that you love. And sometimes they, have, they breach that trust, and the hard part is to forgive them and restore that trust. Uh, hopes all things. That is focusing on that which is positive and developing that, uh, that love even when it has hit some speed bumps. And then endures all things means to persevere in in loving. It goes back to uh, drawing out that idea of being long-suffering. Often I th- th- think that when parents have children and you think about your children and you think about how you think about their sins, most parents are going to bear the sins of their children and cover them before they'll do that for anybody else. They'll look at one, they'll, somebody will do something to you and you won't forgive them 
But if your kid does it to you, you'll forgive them in a heartbeat. Think about that. That really is a pattern that should characterize all relationships. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then the last line, which I don't have up here, which is the beginning of verse 8, says love never fails. That really introduces the next topic. Love never fails in contrast to these spiritual gifts. Paul goes on to say whether there's prophecies, they'll fail. There was a time when the gift of prophecy will no longer be in effect. Uh, whether there are tongues, lang- the gift of languages, they will cease. That will die out. It will no longer be necessary. Whether there's knowledge, that's a spiritual gift of knowledge, it too will be abolished. It's the same verb that's used for prophecies. And, and then he goes on to talk about our knowledge is in part and prophecy is in part. And when he gets down to the conclusion of that section, he says, but now these spiritual gifts... There are some spiritual gifts that will not endure. They won't last beyond the present apostolic period. What will continue, though, is faith, hope, and love. But what continues into eternity is love. Faith and hope are only today. Faith, we walk by faith and not by sight. So when we die, we're with the Lord, and we're not walking by faith anymore. We have direct empirical contact with eternity. Hope is the same way. Hope is what we anticipate in the future, but when that arrives, hope is no longer in effect. So hope and faith don't go into eternity. They are time-bound for our life on this earth. But what does go into eternity is love, and that's all part of what I've taught in the past about understanding uh, the tongues issue. So this helps us to understand what love is, and so that takes us back to where we are in in 1 Peter 4, 4, 8. And 1 Peter 4, 8 then develops this into the next verse. And, oh, well, let me summarize this. I've got a chart here. Love is characterized by these attributes. It's steadfast or it's patient. It's kind, meaning it's generous. It's forgiving. It's gracious. It's not envious. It's not conceited. It's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-absorbed, it's not easily angered, it doesn't impute evil to the object of love, it's not rejoicing in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in integrity. All of that is part of love. Those characteristics describe and define what love is. It's very hard, as I pointed out last time, to define love. Look it up in a dictionary, it's always wrong. It says love is an emotion. But the Bible doesn't say it's an emotion. It's a mental attitude. So we look at all of this. That is what describes what love is. You can't do it. We can't love like that. It is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. The Holy Spirit produces that. Now an application of that is what comes up in 1 Peter 4.9. The very next verse, we're to fervently, intentionally, intensely love one another. And then, as an application, we're to be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now, that word for grumbling is, well, first of all, the word for hospitable is philozenos. Xenos is where we get our word xenophobia. 
uh, is used today to describe racial uh, racism, xenophobia, you hate the races. But it has to do with a stranger. And philos has to do with loving a stranger, and it comes to mean being hospitable to, uh, to someone that is not a family member. And this is why it's, it's good to be able to put yourself in a position where when missionaries come to town, you can open up your house to them. When guest speakers come to town, you can open up your home to them. When uh, people come in for the Chafer Conference, you can open up your home to them. Being hospitable is very much a part of our Christian life and Christian love. First Timothy 3, 2 talks about the fact that this is to characterize a pastor, a, the, the, a term emphasizing his uh, his administrative oversight is the word bishop, episkopos, and part of the characteristic, he's supposed to be hospitable. In Titus 1.8, he's supposed to be hospitable. In Hebrews, talks about uh, being hospitable, and because of that, some people have entertained angels unaware. Now, people are always taking that out of context. The illustration is Abraham. When God appears to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, God comes along with two angels, and um, they appear as men. And Abraham opens up his home to them, and he kills the fatted calf, as it were, and provides for them, provides food and drink and everything. And that's hospitality, and he's entertaining angels, unaware, at least initially, not knowing who who that is. So that's the illustration of it. It's not that, you know, just some guy is going to come knock on your door, and you're going to say, oh, come in here, spend the night, like, uh, like you're opening up the uh, southern border of the U.S. to anybody who comes across without some kind of a judgment and criteria. Uh, but this is someone who is another believer who's traveling, maybe uh, has opportunity to put them up, and that is what is expected of every believer, not just those who are in leadership. We are to be hospital to one another without grumbling, and that's the word gogusmas, which is then directed toward all believers in all areas in Philippians 2.14, to do all things without complaining and disputing. And we'll stop there. That's a very convicting note, that we aren't to complain about anything like the Israelites in the desert, but we are to focus on serving the Lord. And next time we'll come back and talk about spiritual gifts in 1 Peter 4.10. Father, thank you for this opportunity we've had the last couple of lessons to focus on love. It's very challenging to... Uh, recognize that it just just hammers our sin natures that this is the last thing we want to do is to truly love other people uh, in the objective uh, sense that scripture teaches because uh, it's just the opposite of our self-absorbed sin nature and father we pray that we would uh, think significantly seriously about our own lives and the love that we have for others and how that is manifested in light of these characteristics. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.